I'd like to talk about transitions. Is this on? Okay. Transitioning for us this evening. And um, you could say that we've come full circle on this road trip, but we really um, are not headed to any specific destination, really. <laughs> it's looping again, I guess. It's really a ride back to ourselves, a ride back to um, our true nature, a ride back to here and now. For many of us, we're, we're practicing a new way to uh, be with our experiences and new ways to hold our lives uh, with a bit more compassion and a more understanding of the true nature of things from these teachings. We've been understanding about the operating system. Uh, on retreat, we get a chance to pause and turn around and really look at how the mind works and how we support suffering or the end of suffering. That's been our practice. So we've added this new software and been on our various learning curves, various routes. And we've um, been working with the hindrances, which are the things that, you know, tend to rise when we get ourselves still. And we get to see them and know them and touch them and know them for what they are. So we begin our transition from the monastic environment of this temple here back into the marketplace, so to speak. But it's really a state of mind uh, when you really break it down. And well, the truth is, is that the uh, people in your life haven't been on retreat. <laughs> and despite your absence, and without your permission, <laughs> the world has continued to do what it does, you know? It has continued to keep turning. The bombs are still falling all over the world. You know, um, most of the people in the world are impoverished. You know, most of our systems are falling apart right before our eyes. Mother Nature is acting out like never before, one disaster after another, rebelling against our lack of care towards her generosity. There's political hatred and ill will all over the world and right here in this country, especially. And we worry about our kids, our loved ones, our bills, that job, or the, the, you know, we worry. We worry about the babies. Uh, and the, is it good, you know, am, you know, are we good enough and are, am I too good? Or <laughs> 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 we don't know how to leave ourselves alone, you know, we just, oh, I'm enlightened now. Now what do I do with the rest of the world? But most of us are trying to figure out right around this time, how do I hold, you know, how do I maintain this practice as I go back into the world, into the so-called real world? I saw this cartoon on Facebook, and it was uh, these two chickens that were out in a field, and they were separated by a fence. And the one chicken called over there and said, how do you get on the other side? And the chicken on the other side said, you are on the other side. <laughs> so it's kind of perspective, right? So as you begin to enter and make contact with the other side, uh, most of us will be taking our tender heart with us. You know, this kind of access that we might have tapped into a little bit, even if it's been through the gateway of pain 
and discomfort. We might find that we feel a little ungrounded and airy as we make this transition or fatigued and confused. I'm finding as the week goes on, I need more and more pillows. (laughs) (laughs) Some of us may leave feeling a little disappointed with more questions than uh, than answers. And and then we're entering back into um, the lives as we as we know it. You know, some of us are dealing with our our children and our aging parents and our aging bodies and um, you know all of the things, all of the stuff of life. You know, all of the stuff of life. Some of us may be going home and there's no one there. And there's feelings about the, um, the places you've touched into and not having someone in your life to witness or share that with. Sometimes that's a concern. Some of us are going home to somebody and we wish they weren't going to be there. <laughs> <laughs> oh. I know I'm busting some of you here, but that's okay. <laughs> Or you might be going home to someone, which I've heard a bit today, who's not in this practice and you feel like you're so deep in yours that the gap is wide and it's hard to know how to touch in. So, you know, sometimes that's a concern. Some of you might meet people who want to know where have you been and what are you doing and what, what, what's, what's that glow about? And there's many responses we tend to have to that. Sometimes we'll, we'll uh, jump right in and tell them every single thing and then feel exhausted <laughs> and, and upset and wonder, how did I get so wiped out? Other times we become more elevated and env- evangelical. <laughs> and we start talking about, you too could benefit like this. <laughs> you too should be on a retreat. And so we get a bit zealous, and um, that actually creates separation when we do that. And there's a certain pain in that. If you sit still long enough, you'll feel that that creates a certain separation. The uh, making this practice so exotic um, that people feel removed. Some of us might go home and. Um, immediately jump into our devices. Devices of food, (laughs) you know, machines, technology, TV, any number of things. So we we just want to know, think about, we don't want to think too far ahead, but this is kind of what we could be seduced by as we leave here. And many of us might just have an immediate aversion because the world hasn't changed while you've been away and that there's still things about it that uh, are difficult to be with. So we'll feel the the transition like we feel other things and the, the question becomes how do I respond to that? How do I respond to life? Marcel Prose says that the real voyage of discovery consists not in seeking new landscapes, but in having new eyes. Not seeking it to be different, but having new eyes in how we look at it. It's, it's all a practice. Life is, is a practice. The monastery, the marketplace, and everything in between is practice. And at any time, we can pause and ask, what's happening? How am I relating to what's happening? And what's needed? What's needed that will support freedom in this moment, for me as well as all beings? So it's kind of like that being a ceremonial atmosphere that we just kind of hold as a back 
drop as the elevator music that plays that that um, influences the space. There's a few other things we can do that I'd like to offer. One is to, um, I think Gil talked about this earlier this week, is to set an intention for yourself. Set an intention. Uh, the um, In the Mahayana tradition, the, the there's bodhisattva vows that are taken. And this is just to give you an idea of uh, uh, a sense of intention. Sentient beings are numberless. I vow to liberate them. Delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to transcend them. Dharma teachings are boundless. I vow to master them. The Buddha's enlightened way is unsurpassable. I vow to embody it. So when I when I think of the Bodhisattva vows, I don't think it's I don't see it as this one individual going out and conquering the world and making sure every single person that they encounter is, you know, I vow to liberate them. But to me, it speaks more to the, the, the cultivation of a certain radiance uh, in your intention that is um, uh, a form of um, uh, a guidance for you in your life. So you set an intention, and then it becomes a way to hold yourself in a place of uh, nobility as you walk through life. So these may not be your vows, but the idea is to have to set set an intention for yourself that you're setting. Nobody's telling you what to do, but you're setting for yourself. I happen to like the precepts. Sometimes we can take the five precepts and write them in a way that really rings us from the inside. Something we can commit to and live live towards and it helps us when we it helps us uh, recalibrate ourselves and snap out of the trance of greed aversion and delusion having intention supports us in not being driven by desire so it's a useful uh, thing to have my intention and they change they don't have to be one solid thing but I've been working with the intention of um, wanting to be an example in the world where people feel safe in my presence. That's, so I, I, I want to I kind of be with that for a while to, to, to see if, if I could really live true to that, if that, you know, how that works my heart and my service in a particular way. That means I have to pay attention to my connections. I have to slow down enough to bring a certain presence to that. I'm not going to ask you how I've done this week, but <laughs> that's, that's my intention. That's a hope that I have. So when we live by intention, we're less driven by desire. Our practice is also something that, you know, we want to continue and uh, some people find it difficult to be regular with, with the practice. But it's really useful with this new software to, to continue using it so that it becomes a real um, habit for you. We're really reprogramming the, uh, the nervous system and the brain to uh, develop uh, the prefrontal cortex part of the brain, the executive function, so that more wisdom is, is actually, the hardwiring around wisdom is happening. You're inviting that in so that we're not just emotionally driven or in our habituation. We have some uh, mindfulness being developed and being a big part of our, that, that's what we're de developing when we maintain a consistent practice. And sometimes I've found that you have to safeguard this time because there will be lots of competition for other things. So you have to safeguard this time. It has to be in the same category of, of washing your body, brushing your teeth, you know, combing your hair, taking care of the kids. I mean, it's, it's for me, it's up there on the, on the top ten list 
So it's, it's my intention to have it be with regularity. I tell people sometimes that are struggling with just getting the, the momentum going is to do the 555. I call it the 555 rule. Five minutes a day, five days a week, five weeks in a row, and you have a new habit. And um, just to give that a try, you know, most people can do five minutes. And I find that when you sit five minutes, you really want to sit longer than that. But it's just to get you in the, um, the mind in a place of knowing it can develop a new habit if given some consistency and diligence. The other thing that's useful is to um, maintain not just the sitting practice, but also the walking practice. And uh, one of the things I've done is there is a designated hallway in my house that I walk, you know, several times a day. And I've decided that whenever I'm in that area, I slow it down. That's my walking that's when I become mindful of walking. I slow it down. I mean, it's beautiful to have a walking practice in, in the ways that we've learned it this week, and uh, if, if that's possible. But it's also useful to have a place where you're walking anyway that you decide to wake up in when you're in that place. So give that a try. Maybe it's, maybe it's uh, every threshold you, you cross over. Or maybe it's a walkway up to your house, but someplace where you drop into mindful of your contact with the feet can be a way of working with that. The breath is a useful practice. The breath and the body are always in the present moment. There was a practice I did for several months where every hour on the hour, I would be conscious of taking three full breaths every hour on the hour. So maybe it's just twice a day that you try that out. The idea is putting certain practices in place that fit into your daily routine that supports you. So see where you can uh, be aware of the breath. Ideally, anytime you drop into the breath is going to be good news. It's useful to continue studying the, the practices. I have a, I'm in a practice right now where I read a sutta every morning just to know what the teachings, just, just to become acquainted with the teachings themselves and to have my own relationship with that. There's also places like dormacy.org where you can get a lot of recordings and teachings to keep yourself stimulated. And I know Gil's website is very rich in resources for um, articles as well as um, audio recordings. There's a website by um, Bhikkhu Bodhi, Access to Insight. It's also very rich, rich resource for understanding the teachings so that practice can be deepened. I think in looking at how you continue your practice, it's useful to look at the, at the two wings that the Buddha talks about. There's a wing of uh, wisdom that's being cultivated and there's a wing of compassion. And the teachings support, support our well-being. So it's useful to, to incorporate both the wisdom teachings as well as the heart practices. Like, um, you know, metta and compassion, equanimity and joy. It's useful to schedule your next retreat so that there is a place and time that you can, um, you know, get on your calendar and um, work with and work around. 
and to really look at how to how to make that work uh, we got a beautiful note from a yogi that i think really belongs to the full sangha and it has to do with disillusionment which which is sometimes we can um uh you know have a certain uh attitude about uh so and so teacher and this master and you know, and who have you studied with? You know, sometimes we have that in this practice. And this message says that um, in reality, we only attend to retreat with ourselves. The mind teaches much more than any other master. So as you know, the 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 yogi's not saying we don't go and get the teachings, but to be totally reliant on the teacher without understanding that this is about your mind is a missed opportunity. This is my interpretation here. It's also important to have uh, a certain balance of, uh, I find, body practices that support us. Practices like yoga, like um, some way of, of keeping, keeping the body physical in a mindful way, Tai Chi, Qigong, are useful practices, um, mindful practices that help us uh, be in relationship with the body. And also what we eat and what we drink and the company we keep is all a part of this system of meaning. Um, so that we bring in a certain balance and well-being of the, of the full, fullness of who we are. Working with the hindrances uh, is a good, good practice because the hindrances are uh, what we get in immediately in touch with the minute we get ourselves still. They just say, oh yes, yeah, stillness, let's go have a party. <laughs> So as we've looked at these five hindrances this week, we could you could you could have a practice of just taking one of them, you know, the one that the regular visitor where you can start to get some frequent flyer miles from 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 how often they they uh, visit, and uh, you make the make the um, the angst or the grip that they represent in our body your your practice. Prepare a place. Expect them to come. Get to know them well while you're sitting. So you can pull, pick a hindrance. Uh, usually one has already picked you. <laughs> but you can, um, you can be intentional about the welcome there and say, okay, I get that you're going to be around for a while. Come on in. I love how uh, uh, Rumi talks about the guest house. He says, this being human is a guest house. Every morning a new arrival, a joy, a depression, a meanness, some monetary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all, even if they're a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your, your house empty of its furniture Still treat each guest honorably. He may be clearing you out for some new delight. The dark thought, the shame, the malice, meet them all at the door laughing. And invite them in. Be grateful for whoever comes because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. The welcoming the the hindrances, welcoming the obstacles. Let them sweep out the house. So the five hindrances are just taking one, okay, two of them, and have that be a practice for you. And then there's relationship hindrances. You know, there's the, hin the relationships that we're in that become an opportunity for us to wake up. People that are close in, people have a, who have access to our hearts. Um, so that can be a practice. The people that we're relating to on a regular basis, welcome them in 
welcome the grip of that relationship in as a part of practice. I heard a teacher say once that the guest is always God and God is whoever is in front of you. So it's whatever arises in our mind is what we give our attention to. And this is a good place for forgiveness practice, gratitude practices, compassion practices, all useful, especially in our relationships. I was talking to a yogi today who uh, was talking about um, a sense of, uh, how did it go? It was uh, stealing time, stealing time. And it was in the context of our, of our relationship with people that we love. And I was relating it to, um, to, to my life because, you know, whenever you talk to somebody, you kind of meet yourself in the conversation. But it's, it's that idea of wanting someone close to you to give you time that they may not necessarily want to be giving you at that time. But you want it, and, and you're, you're, you know, you're wanting that and wanting to give there, but that's not necessarily what they're needing. So what do you do with your big heart in a situation like that? It's the practice of letting go, softening, of feeling into the wanting. I'm reminded of uh, my mother who passed away in May of this year. And uh, she knew she was uh, close to the end, and I had bought a ticket to go and visit with her. And she, uh, uh, at the last minute, told me not to come. And, of course, I'm disappointed because I'm the one that's been cultivating my heart for so long so that I could be there for the transition of her life and I could care for her. And I, you know, had done all this work, you know, it seems like it's been a life work and she was dying and she knew it and I wanted to be there. So she says, don't come. And what I realized as I sat with my, my broken heart around that is that when I get around my mother with all this gushy love and, you know, which is not her first language, but... <laughs> <laughs> she's, she's tolerated me pretty well. And she says, I don't know where this one came from, but okay, you can. And uh, so when I get around her, she softens. And then when she softens, she lets go a little bit. And when she lets go, I think at this stage of her life, it felt too close to death. Like, I'm not quite sure I want to go there. So her response was to not tell me not to come. So it's, it's the kind of loving that you do at a distance because sometimes it's not all about what you need in the people's lives that you're in. Sometimes it's about what's needed. And that was her need for me to not come. And my need was then to take care of my own, you know, heart that was quick, you know, was shaking and trembling and um, suffering. So sometimes relationships can be like that. It's not that it was a problem, but, you know, I wanted to steal some time with my mother. Sangha is also very helpful when we're kind of going back into the marketplace. And Sangha can also be a place of tremendous practice because you're with people and you know, you get with people and then things with people always come up, you know. And, uh, you know, our judgments kick in because, you know, we're, we're supposed to be like a Buddha, but we're acting like other human beings. And so we have a very difficult time. But it's also a place to practice and with our best heart intention possible and uh, commit ourselves to kind of being... Um, being with a community of people that's looking to deepen a, in, in this particular way. So we could join a local Sangha. The Bay Area is rich with, with Sanghas and resources where you can um, connect with other people that are practicing. 
sometimes you might uh, want to start your own um, group uh, and, and read together and sit together and study together. Maybe there's a couple of people here you'd like to connect with if you're not a part of a Sangha before we leave. But Sangha is a very useful uh, way to feel connected both in silence and in, um, in a social way. You know, and sometimes uh, we, we might avoid that connection. There's, there's a lot of introverts that love just sitting on the cushion, you know. Mm-hmm. You know, this practice is full of in- introverts. And, you know, the idea of uh, there's a sense of losing energy when you're engaging uh, too much uh, for some people. So that there's an avoidance of the sangha and a longing for it at the same time. Uh, So we have to know where that edge is for us and put ourselves in situations where we're both serving and uh, and taking care of ourselves, being being a part and taking care of ourselves. Gandhi says that um, you must not lose faith in humanity. Humanity is an ocean. If a few drops are dirty, the ocean does not become dirty. So if we find one or two things wrong or we feel that edge that sometimes we get when we're around people and there's annoyance, we don't want to lose faith in in the whole ocean. There's a lot of goodness there. I remember being on a a long retreat and uh, there was a guy that sat next to me who... I was pretty annoyed by by most of most of the retreat. He, he was my uh, uh, object of um, of aversion. We tend to have one, you know. So uh, I, I remember being so, uh, you know, he he was really big and he was a white guy, and I was I felt, you know, kind of short and little next to him, and then he took up all this space and. Didn't seem like he cared where the pillows went when he got up, and, you know. And I felt him stomping every time. He, you know, I, I just, you know, I just, you know. So he's um, <laughs> really right there. I mean, I, y- the stories were elaborate. Uh, you know, I was, you know, and we're all in silence this whole time. You know, so. Trump and Rinpoche talks about it. We're architects of space. We make it all up, you know. So sure enough, I I mean, it was just a major uh, preoccupation for me during during this retreat. And um, I think he was staying on for the two month and I was staying for the one month and we had this little transition period. And so we were in the cafeteria having a meal and he sat right across to me from me at the table and I'm thinking, oh man, you know, I still hadn't gotten over this, you know, <laughs> it's been a month. I mean, I had softened a little bit. And I, I look up from my plate across from him and he was looking at me with the most loving eyes and tears were running down his face. And it was like I saw him for the first time. You know, we see people and then we see them. And his love and tenderness, I mean, I, I had just seen him for the first time. And it, it just melted my heart and um, was a nice wake up for me uh, around my judgments. And uh, what occurred to me is that we can be dead, r- dead right in our righteousness. Our stories can have us so callous that, w- that it's deadening in terms of what we can see and feel and have space for. So he was a big teacher for me. Our jobs and our work is another place for us to uh, practice and be and, and expand, take our big hearts to in our practice. And some of us work jobs that we love and some of us work jobs that are really challenges for us. Um, but it's useful, again, to take your intention with you when you go to work and to see 
you know, is, am, am I living true to who I am in this, in this situation, in this relationship? I've seen that here on this retreat when people are doing their yogi jobs. This simple collective good intention in motion and the atmosphere that it creates and the love that is um, uh, compelling it and the way we're holding it as a part of our practice. We could look at going into our jobs with a, with a similar attitude. Rumi says that let the beauty we love be what we do. There are hundreds of ways to kneel and kiss the earth. So we can just see, you know, where can I kiss the earth in this moment? Our political world is another world place of practice. I don't know about you, but when I turn on the news, uh, if I'm not careful, I'm totally preoccupied with the hindrance of uh, so it's really useful to really see what our relationship is to that one of the yogis here wrote a note saying this is all great but when do we get off the cushion and go to the city council meeting (laughs) (laughs) and I think there's something to be said for that you know what is our connection to the, the, uh, the communities we're in and the environments that we're in. Cornel West says that never forget that justice is what love looks like in public. Justice is what love looks like in public. So what are we doing with our big hearts if it's not in service to the broader Sangha? I'm not saying this to say you should, but it's an awareness. It's a, it's, a, it's a broad awareness to see and to invite yourself to look at how is my practice being manifested in the world? Where, where how, you know, a, and can it be in my moment to moment actions? For me, um, I've been interested in um, the prison systems and the industrial complex of the prison system because that's where so many of my relatives are. My grandson and other people in my family. And I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a complex of uh, tremendous suffering and, um, and uh, oppression in this, in this country and many parts of the world. That color divide. So that's a place of focus for me to take my heart, not my anger, but to take my heart. And another area is around the climate. And what I notice is that the issues related to the climate and and what's happening to the earth, the same oppression dance is is, is the same thing as the prison system. It's It's a dance of power, greed, aversion, and delusion. So what, what do you do in the face of that, especially if your loved ones are immediately touched by it? We're all touched by something. The idea is to find something you care deeply about and put your, put your heart there. We've got nature and environments and the environment out there. Nature is a beautiful place to uh, be renewed Sometimes I go out to a big tree and sit next to it and just ask it, how do you stand it? (laughs) Tell me, how do you stand it? How do you stand it? You know, try that. It's beautiful, beautiful practice. Yeah. It's also important to just not take from this earth, but also to see where you can give back. There's a reciprocity, you know, there's a practice of dana, and it's, it's like that in nature as well. What, what can we give back and not just take? There's also um, the, uh, I think there's the giving to, uh, of gratitude and 
especially as it relates to our ancestors and our lineage and paying respect to those who came before us, the good, the bad, and the ugly, <laughs> but to recognize that, um, that uh, what, again, what's unfinished is reborn. And sometimes we carry that in our ways, in our habits, in our construction, our conditioning. We carry the unresolve of what's unfinished, and oftentimes that's very unconscious. We're just living it out. It's called normal. So sometimes it's useful to kind of turn it around and see, you know, how old is this that I'm carrying? And can't I put it down? Knowing that when you do put that to rest, you're not just doing it for yourself. You're doing it for a whole lineage, and there's relief when that happens, atmospheric relief. I think the other thing that uh, can be useful is to, uh, uh, sometimes we see people as fixed entities, like, like they're solid, as opposed to seeing that they're uh, a process of ever-flowing uh, ever people. You know, I, I, you know, we all had stories about our parents or people that we love and they're so solid and never this and always this. And um, I remember uh, my mother out of the blue, who was who a poet, and she would take uh, Christian songs. She, she worked, she, she was a pianist, she's a musician in, in the church. So she'd take these old gospel songs and change the lyrics and then call you up and sing you a song with uh, something very pointed and uh, personal. It was just really lovely. So I get a call in the middle of the night. She never knew what time it was where I was. We're on different coasts. <laughs> so she would call and, and so she sings me this song. Love is a candle that lightens the darkness of misunderstanding. And she, she sang that in her voice. And I'm looking at the phone saying, this is amazing. This is, is this my mother? You know, it was unlike her to do that with me, but you know, I saw her do it with a lot of other people, but it was such a delight. So, so never be surprised how people might show their love. It's, if you're looking for it in a particular way, you just might miss how it comes. So there's much to be done in the world and uh, the world needs our big hearts our practice. Here's a beautiful piece I read called The Clearing, and it speaks to this lovely. It says, do not try to save the world or do anything grandiose. Instead, create a clearing in the dense force of your life and wait there patiently until the song that is your life falls into your own cupped hands and you realize and greet it and you recognize and greet it. Only then will you know how to give yourself to this world so worthy of rescue. So there's a deep knowing and informing that can happen through our stillness practice that helps us connect deeply with the world, deeply with what we know we're our, uh, what our offer is. So, create a clearing in the dense force of your life and wait there patiently until the song that is your life falls into your own cupped hands and you recognize and greet it. So, li life as a ceremony. Uh, Reminds me of that old nursery rhyme, row, row, row your boat, row, row, row your boat gently down the stream, merrily, 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 life is but a dream. Uh, it is a dream. And Ram Dass says that we're all just walking each other home. So that is, you know, what we're doing. So the Buddha speaks of this as a gradual training, as a gradual path as a gradual pa uh, practice, it's not to be abrupt. It's like, you know, it's not gonna be immediate. And many of you have had moments of joy on this retreat. 
that have pierced you right to the core of deep knowing. And even though joy is not necessarily the destination, it's one of the side perks you get from the practice. And as the five hindrances begin to subside and they don't capture you and grip you, uh, what we find is that uh, we can start to see not so much the hindrance, but we can see the three characteristic of impermanence. We can see that there is impermanence, three characteristics of existence. We can see impermanence. So we're not so locked into the hindrance itself. We can see that this is impermanent. It comes and it goes. We can see that it's dukkha. And we can see that the more we solidify around it, the more we suffer. So, th- so with, with looking at these hindrances and practicing with them, watching them rise and then watching them fade away, after a while, you know, sometimes we might find that there's a bit more space that we can open to and notice the spaces in between the hindrances that capture our attention, that mindfulness that I talked about the other day, that panoramic view that um, supports us seeing something other than what's got us. And as we settle into that, rest into that space, rest into that sense of presence, we can begin to feel a bit more concentrated, a bit more stable. We touch into moments and maybe even increasing moments of calmness and tranquility. And we see that we can also begin to develop a relationship with those things, not just what hinders and captures our mind. And even with those things, the idea is to not try to hold on to them as if they're solid. Joseph Goldstein uh, talks about uh, the momentum of mindfulness, that mindfulness has a certain momentum, that there's no wasting of our energy when we are being uh, mindful. It all matters. And we won't be mindful all the time, but when we wake up to, to being mindful, when we're not mindful, we catch ourselves judging or forgetting Uh, we can always bring ourselves back to being mindful. That's our practice. And it's like composting. You know, we're in this heap and uh, it may not feel like we're doing much. You look at the heap of compost, but at some point it has a rich soil that nurtures the blossoming of kindness, the blossoming of awareness, the blossoming of freedom. So don't be discouraged in the practice, discouraged by those times when it may not feel like anything's happening. I, I heard of uh, the, this, this uh, piece by Jacob Ribb that was written back in 1914. And it's the stone cutter. It's like when nothing, it goes, when nothing seems to help, I go and look at a stone cutter hammering away at his rock perhaps a hundred times without as much as a crack showing in it. Yet at the hundredth and first blow, it will split in two. And I know it was not that blow that did it, but all that had gone before. So I don't want you to hammer yourself away at this, but (laughs) (laughs) the idea is to maintain your practice and it may not appear that something's happening. Sometimes we get this in retrospect. I was talking to someone today. It's like, I kind of see this in retrospect. Sometimes it's, that's happening, but to don't be discouraged. So we still have... um, several hours before we get out of this bus together. And the idea is not to lean too forward into tomorrow afternoon. See if you can 
Stay here as much as you can with this breath, with this sit, with this step. And it's natural to lean into the next thing or to anticipate. But the practice for now is to see if you could stay with this breath, this sit, this walk, this bite of food. As much as you can. And it's true that you might start to see familiar signposts as, as you move through the next several hours, but hopefully with fresh air, with fresh eyes. It's like Gil was saying the other day of sitting on the river bank and, and letting those boats float by. You can still enjoy and wave at them for now. to be present, one breath at a time. So let's sit together. Do not try to save the whole world or do anything grandiose. Instead, create a clearing in the dense force of your life and wait there patiently until the song that is your life falls into your own cupped hands and you recognize and greet it. Only then will you know how to give yourself to this world so worthy of rescue. 